0: so you sleep better together JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for JD Power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com/awards only at sleepnumber stores or sleepnumber.com
1: hello i'm james rogers and this is the history hit world wars podcast I have had the absolute pleasure in the past to be taken up by the RAF Benevolent Fund in a de Havilland Tiger Moth, which was the primary wartime RAF trainer. People such as Guy Gibson flew Tiger Moths during their initial training. But one thing I've never been able to do, not had the opportunity yet, is to go up in a Spitfire. But what is it about the Spitfire that makes it so alluring and enduring as a symbol of Britain's wartime victory. Well, in this podcast, first recorded for Dan Snow's history hit, Dan talks with John Nickel, a retired Royal Air Force navigator who was shot down and captured during the first Gulf War, and he's the author of the best-selling book Spitfire, a very British love story. This is a plane, as I explain... That was critical for the RAF's efforts in the Battle of Britain during the Second World War, and they discuss why it occupies such a special place in the heart of the British people.
2: Nicol, I cannot pass. A Waterstones Bookshop or any other bookshop without seeing your big old Spitfire book in the window. It's, it's going gangbusters. It's, it's fantastic. Well done, you. Thanks, mate. It's, um, do you know what? It, it, it's, I think it's now,
3: is it 15 weeks in the top ten? It's been an amazing journey. There's Spitfire is my 15th book. So, Tornado Down was my, when I you know, talk about my experiences in the Gulf War, that was my first book that came out in 1992. So 26 and that was a bestseller. Again, it was, uh, uh, but this one has just not stopped selling over summer. Now, when I wrote it, I knew it was a bit special. Um, and I had hopes for it, but I had no concept. I don't the publisher didn't either. It just seems to, I don't know, struck a chord because there's
2: loads of history books out there at the moment. Why do the great British people love The Spitfire.
3: That is a question that I kind of tried to set out to answer in the book... The the short answer is that it's it's indefinable, but I'll I'll tell you the experience that started the process for me of writing. I was getting a a, a veteran, a a 90-year-old veteran back into the air. He was a Spitfire Spitfire veteran, and he hadn't been back in a Spitfire since uh, the end of the war in 1945. And I took him up to Duxford, to the the people up there who've got a Spitfire. Uh, Air Marshal Cliff Spink, friend of mine, used to be my station commander at RAF Collingsby. He he said he would take him flying. And I experienced something at Duxford. I don't know if you've been up there, Dan, but because it's the museum, there's the imperial war museum part and all the exhibits are facing away from the runway so if you're looking at the exhibits your look your back is to the runway so when myself and this spitfire veteran got there and cliff wound the spitfire up and the you know the roar of the engine the merlin engine as you know is a is a is a specific sound and i i watched something unfold people turned when the when they heard the sound of the Merlin, they turned towards the sound and then they started running. And they were literally dragging their kids by the collars towards the sound of the engine and they saw the Spitfire. And they were pointing, it's a Spitfire, it's a Spitfire. And that's what got me on this journey. I thought, wow, what a phenomenon. Why is it, why is that why is it the Spitfire? And so right, that's how I set off on the journey. So you ask the question, why? Uh, I think on a, uh, a number of different uh, levels, the sound, uh, there's no doubt about it. It's unique. The sight, it is a beautiful looking machine. That series of compound curves, that, that unique elliptical wing, that it, it flows, it looks, beautiful even though it's what is it now 80 years old it looks still stunning it doesn't look like a classic aircraft it looks like a stunning aircraft and the other thing is that it came at a time in our nation's history when we were looking for heroes we were looking for heroes in the men and the women who were fighting the war but we were looking for heroes in machines and the Spitfire became a symbol. There's no doubt about that. It was a bit of a, uh, bit of a spin campaign by the government, in actual fact. Uh, there's no, it, was, it was one of the original spin campaigns. What happened was they set up something called a Spitfire Fund. Now, it could have been anything. It could have been a Hurricane Fund. It could have been uh, a Lancaster Fund. But it was a Spitfire Fund. And people were encouraged to donate towards building a Spitfire. And you could donate anything from a couple of pence to tens of thousands of pounds. And it raised, I can't remember the exact figures, I think it raised something like £13 million over the course of the war, which is, I think that if you transfer that into contemporary figures, it must be in the order of £100 million. Can you imagine a government campaign to raise money for anything? never mind a piece of military machinery, that raised so much money. So it's a, it's, a, it's a number of different things, but it's still... People look at the Spitfire and their heads turn to the sky. They still do.
2: And, and you interviewed lots of people for this book. Mm. I, I was lucky enough to talk to Mary Ellis. Yes. Um, and she, she died a week after our interview. So, so when you write these books, you are now one of the last historians that will ever get to talk to many of these people. And very much so, and that, that bears...
3: Uh, heavily um on two levels because I've been doing I've been you know as you know I've been writing for 15 20 years now so when I was interviewing veterans 15 years ago I was using an old dictaphone tape and I just, I recorded over them and that, I never kept any of them and now almost every single one has gone and I don't have the I don't have those interviews I, I'm ashamed but you never thought about it then. Now I use a digital recorder and I, I archive everything. And so I interviewed about, uh, I spoke to about 40 Spitfire veterans. So engineers on the ground, in the air, Mary Ellis I spoke to, um, uh, Joy Lofthouse, I think you spoke to her as well, who was another ATA lady. And of the 40, I think one is alive. So over the two-year period, uh, over the last kind of two and a half years... Only one is alive. I got an email yesterday morning from New Zealand, Alan Peart, who's a major character in the book. Uh, he's, his story is astonishing. He's, he is one of the great unknown heroes of aviation. His story is, is, is just is astonishing. He died just yesterday morning uh, in New Zealand, age 96. He, he was the last surviving New Zealand Spitfire ace. So one, there's now one character from my book, who remains alive. And as you say, they're a diminishing generation. And if we don't record their stories now, then when shall we?
2: When you're talking to your, the, the, the aircrew, your, your predecessors in the RAF, Did they know the Spitfire was a special aircraft or is it just mythologising by our generation years later? I think a little bit of both, Dan. So everybody you speak to
3: loved the Spitfire. I think Joy Lofthouse, one of the female ATA pilots, she said, you didn't climb into a Spitfire, you put it on. You became part of it. You strapped in, and she said it was like strapping on wings and flying. And everybody eulogised about the Spitfire in that way. So, you know, everybody said what an amazing aircraft it was to fly. But if you speak to a Hurricane pilot, they'll tell you that. A Mosquito pilot will wax lyrical about the fantastic musqui- World War II Mosquito. Uh, those who flew the Lancaster will tell you that it was one of the most beautiful war machines that you could ever hope to fly. So it's a little bit of both. It is, I think one of the things is that there are so few around and when you see them, they do strike a chord and there were so many of them built. I think the first order in the late 30s was for 230 and we were not gonna order anymore. The Mark I was going to be the last mark of Spitfire. And in the end, I think we ordered 22,500 were built um, before, before, uh, by 1945. And they'd gone from the Mark I and they got to the Mark 47, which was the Seafire version. And so that was another great aspect of the Spitfire. It was constantly improved. And as you know, uh, war is a great propellant for technological development. And so the Spitfire was developed from that Mark 1 basic flying machine to the Mark 47 Seafire, which was flying off the carriers, was an um, astonishing machine. And so it developed. So many were built. But as in so many of these cases, and you could name all the different aircrafts, after the war, we didn't want them anymore. We simply got rid of them. So the 23,000, I think they're on now. Is it something like four or five wartime versions still flying, worth in the, the many, many millions of the 23,000. Because like mobile phones, you would never today think of keeping an old mobile phone, would you? you just get rid of it. And it was the same back then. And aviation was moving on. We'd gone from the Spitfire. We were moving on to the jet engine. Why, what would you do with 23,000 Spitfires? Where the hell would you keep them? So they chopped them up. They sold them on. They got rid of them. The ones they couldn't sell, they simply they, they put in a big pile and set on fire. They got rid of them. John, what was the impact? What impact did the Spitfire make in that first year and a half of the war? Well, the Spitfire was actually crucial. You know, when you're looking at uh, the Battle of Britain, uh, the defence of the UK, uh, the nation's darkest hour, the the time when our nation was at its greatest peril in in that part of history, the Spitfire was an absolutely uh, crucial part of the overall defence of the country. Now, if I, if I say no more, anybody who loves the Hurricane will be screaming at the podcast. What about the Hurricane? Uh, and so, but there, so there were other aircraft. So the the Hurricane was an absolutely crucial part, as were the the radar chains, as were the the integrated what we would now call an integrated air defence system. It was all part of the same defence of the UK. The Spitfire was a crucial part. There's no doubt about that. People will argue about whether the Spitfire had more kills, whether the Spitfire was more successful. The simple fact was, without any part, of the, without any single part of that chain of defence, the history of our country would have been very, very different.
2: And your book is notable because you've really charted the story through many of the individuals that flew in the... Just pick out a couple of individuals that have left a big impression on you. Uh, I'm going to pick probably Alan Peart, uh,
3: who passed away yesterday. Alan was a young kid in New Zealand. He was 19 years old. And I, I spoke to Alan at length, an amazing gentleman. He became an incredible pilot, but age 19, he decided that he was going to come and defend what he refers to as his homeland. Now, it wasn't his homeland because he lived in New Zealand. His father lived in New Zealand. They were, what well, was his second generation from this country. But he crossed from the other side of the world to protect the interests of the United Kingdom. Uh, he arrived at the tail end of the Battle of Britain, so October. So he didn't fly in what is officially called the Battle of Britain, but he flew in the defence uh, of the UK mainland at the back end. Of 1940 and through into 1941, he flew in the defence of Malta. Uh, he flew operations over into Europe in 1941, 1942. He ended up in Burma in 1940, back end of 1943, 1944. So he became he, he was 19. So when he started, he became an incredibly experienced Spitfire pilot. And one of the stories that he told, and I I I, I use it in every last detail in the book. He was in Burma, uh, and he, he was one of the most experienced Spitfire pilots. And he took off with his squadron commander because they had noticed that there was a Japanese raid inbound. And they said four Japanese aircraft inbound. And uh, Alan and his squadron commander took off. As soon as the wheels were in the well, his squadron commander was shot down, straight away, shot down and killed. So Alan was left on his own, facing what he thought was four Japanese Oscar fighters. 20 Japanese fighters approached the airfield. So he was on his own and he fought a 20-minute aerial battle, 1v20. Now, any aviator who's listening to that, their jaw will drop. He fought 20 Japanese fighters uh, on his own. And his story his account is one of what I regarded as the great untold stories of military aviation. And when I speak to, you know, friends of mine who fly the typhoon, friends of mine who fly the tornado, Martin Pert, the leader of the Red Arrows, when I was telling them about this, they, they just, it's a, it is an, it's almost unbelievable. He literally almost pulled the wings off the aircraft. He popped the rivets. The aircraft was deformed because he overstressed it. He pulled so much G. He should have... The the aircraft was broken. But he said... And he said to me, he said, John, I thought I was going to die. I was in the middle. I was... If you can imagine being beaten up by 20 men, how can you get away from that? So he was being beaten up by 20 Japanese fighter aircraft. And he said, I thought I was going to die. And so I was not going to go down without a fight. I was going to fight with every last energy that my body possessed, and I was going to use every last ounce that that Spitfire could give. And if I pulled the wings off, I would pull the wings off and die doing that. And he didn't. And after 20 minutes, because the Japanese fighters were uh, flying at extended range, they they basically were running out of fuel and had to leave. So he won a battle of 1v20, and he won the Distinguished Flying Cross for it. His story of near-death experience touched me. It really touched me. It was so incredible. And what touched me more, Dan, was he'd never kissed a girl in his life. He'd never kissed a girl. But here he was. He'd fought across the globe. He'd come, he'd come from one side of the globe to the other, and he'd ended up back in the Far East, fighting Europe, Malta, Middle East, uh, Italy, C- Sicily. And he'd never kissed a girl. That's how naive they were in one respect, but warriors, my God, they were warriors in the other respect.
2: What a story. The the Spitfire saw service in in, in every theatre, did it?
3: Yeah, it did. I mean, it saw service across the globe. So, obviously, Battle of Britain, uh, then in, the, uh, 19, in the 1941, attacking, going across the Channel into occupied France to attack the Germans on the ground. Then it saw service in Italy, in Sicily, in the defense of Malta, which was uh, an almost medieval siege of Malta, the island uh, in the Mediterranean. It went all the way out to Burma in the Far East. It was fighting in uh, Darwin in Australia, the, the battles of Darwin in Northern Australia. We lent them to the Russians. We sent them to the Russians, and they fought on the far, e- in the, um, in, the uh, in the Russian theater of war. Now, There's a story in the book where there's a, an account from a German pilot uh, who's, a, who's on the Eastern Front fighting against the Russians, and he comes up against Spitfires. And he, and he has a, a, an aerial battle with Spitfires and he lands back at his base and he says, uh, in the Luftwaffe, he says, I've just fought a Spitfire. And they said, no, you can't. The, the, the Russians, the, no Spitfires. Well, they were. And they did, the Germans didn't know. So uh, the, the story of giving them to the Russians is amazing because we simply shift them over in containers. We send some engineers and the engineers put them back together. We gave the instructions to the Russians who couldn't read our English instructions. And so basically took off in them by pressing the buttons in an eye-pleasing sequence, because all of the controls were, all of the, inst- all the dials, all the switches were still clearly written in English. And so the, the Russians took off and flew them, even though they couldn't understand a damn thing about them. And so they, it served everywhere. It was an astonishing war machine.
2: Well, John, you have done it justice uh, in your new book, and it shows that even 75, now 80 years after the, after the Second World War, people are still obsessed with this, with this aircraft. As an uh, aircrew, you've obviously been in the back of one, have you? No, I haven't. Uh, you've,
3: you've, yeah, I know that you have. I saw you doing so. I haven't because uh, a couple of the friends that I've got who fly them, when they've offered me trips, I've always given it over to a veteran you know, I, I just think, you know, I want to see the joy in the veteran's face. When, when, I, when I, uh, Brian Bird, who was the old guy, uh, 90, when I got him up in a Spitfire, the, he, he just had a hip operation. He, he was in a wheelchair, but nothing was... We had, it took six of us to get him into the Spitfire. But the, the joy in his face, the years fell away from him. And so the couple of chances that I've had, I've given them over. Who, who, was it Parky who took you flying? Tony Parkinson? When when you went flying in the Spitfire?
2: No, it wasn't. It wasn't Parky. No, it was uh, Jonah down in um, down in Goodwood. Yeah. Oh, you,
3: So you went with that one. No. So but I know loads of the guys who are flying them. But no, uh, I've I've given up my back seat. So no, I haven't. You you've done better than I have on that front.
2: Well, no, thanks, John. You're making me feel really selfish and and, uh, and rude now. So that's great. <laughs> You, know, you, were doing it, well, you were doing it for RAF 100, weren't you, was it? For, for the one show in RAF 100 or something. That's right, that's right. Listen, the book is called... Spitfire, A Very British Love Story. Brilliant. And you, I hope you're going to write more history books. Well, it's been such a
3: success, the publisher is shoehorning me into writing another one, so I'm deep into interviewing veterans again and getting their stories. You might be interested to hear, Dan, that it's the, the aircraft I'm writing about has got Merlin Engines but he's got four of them. <laughs> giving you a hint.
2: <laughs> wow. Okay, everyone, you heard it here first. We think we've it got is a pretty the first good hint. hint. Uh, well, there you go. Breaking exclusive, breaking news on History Hit. It's a large four-engine aircraft that might just have played also a very important part in the Second World War, particularly flying over some reservoirs, perhaps, in, uh, in, in Germany. Indeed. So, uh, John, please come back on the pod and talk to us about that book when it comes out.
3: it would be my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me on.